Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Opportunity Knocks, the podcast about people in their business journeys, small business entrepreneurs of all types. Today, we've got one of these guests that has been on my radar for quite some time. I got connected uh, through through our good friend Charles Weinraub, who you've all heard about in the past. Uh, and we are with Chris Grenzig today. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be on. Finally. I appreciate it. That's right. It's been, you know, we're not that far from each other yet. It's taken how many weeks to, to finally make yeah, this happen, know. quarantine and lockdown to make things work, but we got there. Exactly. Yeah. So, now we got enough time on our hands. That's it. We got to make the time. That's the way I got to exactly. look at it. So Chris, you are, you are owner, co-owner, uh, I'll let you dive in and explain of Toro Real Estate Partners. So I'm, I'm actually the like asset manager. So I'm okay. directly below, um, John Dunn, but handle every basically kind of like anything that slips through the cracks i'm there to pick up terrific and you've been at this like you said earlier you've been at this about three and a half years give me a little yep. bit about your background what'd you do before this and what led you to get into this path and, sure and, so and, well before I, we do that tell us what toro toro real estate partners is first sure so really quick we're a multifamily focused uh investment company uh real estate um we focus on you know medium to large apartment complexes in the Southeast and Midwest United States. So 100, 200, 300 units, you know, anywhere between five and $50 million. Um, you know, that's kind of the deals we look for. Um, we try to buy deals that have some sort of distress component or value component where we can come in, bring some extra money to the table, fix things, improve things, uh, raise rents, um, increase operations, and then, you know, dispose of it for, you know, hopefully profit. Um, but that's kind of what we specialize in. We also do a little bit with uh, mobile home parks, but our bread and butter is, you know, multifamily real estate. So apartment buildings, um, but kind of my background where I tend to start it was I graduated college in 2014, went to Hofstra university right here on long Island. Um, division one athlete played soccer there for four years. And like a lot of other college kids and especially student athletes, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do afterwards. So just fell into a coaching role, um, coach for a division two program up in Massachusetts um, liked it, but realized long-term it just wasn't for me. I really missed, um, Long Island, New York and wanted to move back home. And if you want to scale up in the college coaching world, you got to be willing to move wherever, whenever, you know, to find the right jobs and move up. So I was like, it's just not quite the right fit. Um, so came home, got another coaching job, but they're part-time, they're not full-time jobs. So I needed another job and I got a second job working as a cold caller for a stock brokerage company, uh, in Rockville center. And did that for a about a year and a half. And that was kind of like my first introduction into like the business world, you know, after school. Okay. Um, and I learned a ton there, um, but very quickly realized also too, um, it wasn't for me. Um, you know, it's very much a, you know, high octane industry. You know, you're cold calling four five, 600 times a day. Um, you know, you're expected to work more than eight hours a day, sometimes 10 or 12 hours. Um, and it was also very first a commission first kind of environment. So, you know, what can I make for my client? Not what can I make my client? And I wasn't very happy with that. So after a few months was trying to figure out a way to leave and look at other opportunities. And as luck would have it, um, my mom and my cousin bought a flipping course and they kind of asked if I wanted to come along. They had like that weekend seminar that a lot of them do. And that was kind of my first introduction into real estate. So before that, you know, I didn't know anything, literally nothing. Perfect example I give was I used to think asbestos was a type of mold. Okay. So 
if you know anything at all about building materials or you've owned real estate, you know, that's couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, the reason I thought it was because I know it gets in your lungs, it causes problems. That's why I thought it was mold. So um, I literally knew nothing. So for the next few months, that was my, you know, my learning period. Um, my mom and my cousin had both owned real estate. They were both agents. And then, you know, we had this course. So that was a very steep learning curve for me. Um, and we started trying to flip houses on Long Island. Um, and we just flat out failed to do it for the next six to eight months. Didn't flip a single home, didn't buy anything, didn't put anything under contract, um, just failed. And the reason, the reasons that we failed are multiple, but the major ones are, one was our own lack of execution. Um, we failed to one, stick it out long enough to actually see results. We decided to pivot, which ended up being a good thing. But if we were dead set on being flippers, um, we quit way too early. You know, you can't go have a go at something for six months and expect to, you know, have something fall in your lap too. We didn't put in enough resources to find deals that were not on, you know, the MLS or, you know, publicly available to buy. Um, and three, we just wanted much larger margins than you probably get in, you know, high cost of living areas and high interest areas like, you know, New York, Miami, LA, et cetera. So, um, you know, we failed at that, but what we had decided to do towards the end of it was we said, instead of trying to beat our head against a brick wall, why don't we find somebody that's actually doing it and see if we can leverage their experience by helping them one way or another and kind of ride their coattails a little bit until we can find our feet somewhat. And the way we decided to do that was we had some extra capital lying around. We said, let's lend it as a hard money loan and let's get an inside look into how this, who we thought was an experienced flipper, um, operated you know, their flips, their business, et cetera. Um, as luck would have it, that person we lent money to is John's cousin, who is one of the owners at Toro. And we ended up meeting him. And from there, it was just like a really good spark and just like really good synergies. And we decided to start working on some stuff together. So the first thing we did was we invested passively a little bit in an eight unit property um, that he was raising money for. And that was like at the very start of the conversation. We said, same idea. We said, hey, multifamily is something that's very interesting as well. Let's get some experience. Worst case scenario, you know, it's better in our opinion to invest money into a deal than to pay again for an educational course where good chance we make money and it's not a guarantee we lose money and we'll probably learn a similar amount along the way. That was our thought process. Ended up property did very well and led to a lot of knowledge and opportunity afterwards. So in hindsight, great decision. Um, from there, decided to joint venture on another 17 units in the same area. Uh, so in Covington, Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. So a really yeah. interesting area. And then from there, we also joint ventured on an 82 unit property in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and that was kind of like the birth of us really getting to know John and, you know, really step into, you know, the industry and, you know, understanding multifamily. And right around the same time that we were closing the 17 unit property, um, I was still working at that stock brokerage company and I was miserable. I had put on a ton of weight. Um, I won't say I was depressed, but I was definitely like downtrodden and beaten up and stuff like that. And I was really looking for a way out. I was basically ready to quit without another job lined up and just happened to be sitting down with John one day, grabbing a cup of coffee. I think I'm 24 at the time. I'm 28 now. Um, and 
just having a talk in small world, he had worked for the same people just at a different company about five or six years prior. So it was like, I was able to like talk to him about a lot of things that were going on and things I were feeling. And it was just really good to like go back and forth with him from somebody who had escaped and had felt very similar um, and stuff like that. And just as I was talking, you know, saying, you know, saying, you know, maybe I'll go for another six months, see if we can get the real estate stuff going full time where there's, you know, enough money that I can just live um, and kind of get this going and, you know, do what I have to do. And he said, well, you know, me and my partner are actually thinking about bringing somebody in full time to help us out with the asset management side. Is that something, you know, you'd be interested in? And I basically said yes uh, in an instant because anything to get out of that job and have a paycheck coming in for something that I thought would work well, um, but ended up sitting down with John and his partner, Don, and meeting them, um, just having a conversation. And then I think a week, a week later, you know, I just quit my job, moved over there um, into a tiny, tiny office built for two people, crammed in. And you know that was the, the start of that um, and kind of just transitioned to full-time multifamily real estate at Toro. Um, and that was August of 2016. Um, so we're almost getting close now to, it's probably still closer to three and a half than four years, but you know, every day closer to four years being there. Um, and since I've been there, we've bought probably around 3,500 units, give or take 220, $230 million worth of property. Um, and it's just been an incredible experience. Um, and they're really great to work with. And, you know, they've created a platform where it's allowed me and by extension them to kind of do things like this where we can, you know, help others and give back and continue to educate. Like we did a meetup for about three years every month. We're probably going to, we were going to start it up and then, you know, this whole virus thing uh, hit again. So we had to postpone it. Charles was actually going to come speak on house flipping um, in Long Island. And then this whole thing happened. Um, But it's been a really great way to kind of, you know, give back the same way that I was given, you know, a lot of knowledge, education and help and stuff like that through, networking events and podcasts and, you know, just meeting people and things like that. Um, you know, now it allows me to kind of do some of the same stuff, you know, two, three, four years later. It's amazing how, how kind of you were in the right place at the right time, but at the same time you kind of felt an opportunity building there and you jumped at it and it's turned into something special for you. It's a great story to hear. Let me know for sure. And I think, I don't always say, cause I don't want it to be like, Oh, you know, big sacrifice, but I did take a pretty significant pay cut to leave. Okay. Like I, you know, I was making decent money for a 20 year old kid, probably, I don't know, four or five, six grand a month, depending upon how my commissions were, um, you know, and probably slash that in half, if not more to kind of get out of there. Um, they kind of gave me a, you know, a three, six month trial. Cause when I came in, it was definitely a little bit earlier than they really needed somebody to help out. Um, but I think it was just that, Hey, they saw that it could grow into something more and help them out long-term and, you know, I also was just dying to get out. So, you know, for me, it was, you know, I'd rather take less money and do something that, you know, at least I probably won't hate good shot. I end up really liking it. Um, and it turned into one of the best decisions I ever made. So it was short term pain for both you and for them bringing you on board a little earlier in the process than they probably realized they need they they, they mm-hmm. really needed you, but long-term gain. Yeah, for it's, sure. Yeah. I mean, at the time I was living in a house with, you know, seven other of my friends paying like, 500 bucks a month. And this is, you know, this is a small Cape Cod house that has no extension built on three bedrooms in the basement, two on the main floor, two upstairs. And, you know, you're crammed in with two bathrooms and, you know, we'll, we'll call it 
one legal kitchen, one maybe not so legal kitchen. Who Make, knows? Makeshift room, we'll call yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but look, I mean, I, I did what I had to do, um, you know, to make it work. And, you know, thankfully I'm not there anymore, but, you know, I was in that, you know, situation for two, two and a half years. So you become the average of the people you surround yourself with. And fortunately for you, you got out of that, that I'll call it a frat house mentality where you're also <laughs> in the same place, but it sounds no, like you sure. surrounded yourself with some pretty, some pretty special people on the business end of it. Yeah, no, I, they've been a huge influence. Um, you know, they were super generous with their time, especially early on. Cause I was still learning the business when I first came in, it was, you know, Hey, go try it. And when you ultimately don't know what you're talking about, we'll tell you how to fix it. But they were super generous with their time and knowledge. And even today, cause I'm still, you know, I'm all, in the grand scheme of things, I'm only 28, right. I'm still very young, still, you know, three years in a business is not that long at all. Three and a half, four years, whatever you want to call it. You know, I'm still learning stuff every day, whether it's, you know, asking John and Don, whether it's asking our insurance guy or property managers or contractors, um, you know, it's every day I'm learning something new. So in an still ev- trying to ask and find yeah. that out. In an ever evolving world, I think when the day comes that there's not something new to learn, we all need to, that's when we all really need to panic. For sure. You know? Absolutely. I, I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned a couple things and because you have the experience and you, you dropped, you dropped a couple nuggets in there and a few terms that I wanted to see if I could get you to embellish on just to kind of educate our, our sure. audience, because real estate investing is something that so many people talk about. Not enough people want to put the work into it and too many people get into it without actually getting that education. Um, and, and so I wanted to dabble in a few things to find out about where you find the the biggest chances for people to get educated. Uh, but you, you mentioned several times the whole joint venture part of it, <clears throat> excuse mm-hmm. me, define for me in your terms and in, in, in your world, what you mean by that joint venture. Yes. So I think joint venture is a broad term and it's whatever you make of it for us in those scenarios. It was, um, I guess, quick context in multifamily syndication, the way it kind of gets structured is the people who put the deal together are called, you know, sponsor, syndicator, general partner. They're all interchangeable. They all mean the same thing. And basically what happens is, you know, you get minimal fees for putting the deal together, you get minimal fees for operating the deal. And then when you start to hit certain return metrics, you start to take a piece of the pie of those profits. So the way it'll happen is a lot of times you have a 8% preferred return. And what that means is, as the, let's say, Dean, you were one of the investors, you put in just for argument's sake, $100,000 until you make 8% per year on your money. I'm not taking any money from the profit out of your pocket. But once we get over 8%, then for every dollar, I'm going to take a small percentage. So it could be 20%, it could be 30%. And you can have multiple hurdles is what they call them, or just one. It might just be a straight 8% preferred return to the investor and then split 70-30 in perpetuity. It could be 70-30 until 15% and then it goes 60-40 or 50-50. You can structure it however you want. So the way it worked was, back to the question of joint venture, um, when we joint ventured, we were brought onto that sponsor, syndicator, general partnership side where some of the money the general partnership would make we were allocated a percentage of that for helping find the deal, run the deal, operate the deal, and eventually, you know, sell the deal for whatever profit uh, there was. So that was how we structured the joint venture. It was 
the first deal we did, we were just passive investors. So we were the $100,000 investor where if it made 20%, you know, the general partnership would get a cut of that. If it made 8%, they wouldn't get a cut of it. We were not on that side of the coin. However, we were able to kind of integrate ourselves with John, provide some value to him, take some stuff off his plate. So therefore, you know, we were brought onto his side of the coin and, you know, compensated for that. Um, so that's how I tend to see joint ventures. Very good. I appreciate that. Where and how does a group like yourself find your, your opportunities, your transactions, the, these new properties? So it really depends. Um, and it depends on the size of the property, both in <clears throat> units and or dollars. The larger properties that are a hundred plus units, you know, $10 million plus, especially in larger cities like your Atlanta's, your Orlando's, you know, your Indianapolis's, um, even, you know, your major metros like New York's right. tough to find those deals when they're not through brokers because there are thousands of brokers and dozens of them in every market. Their job 40 to 80 hours a week is just to call owners, build relationships, and they've been doing it for years. So it's very significantly tougher to find those off-market mom and pop owners, stuff like that. Um, especially in the last couple of years, you could still find it back in, you know, 2008 to 2012 from what I've been told, obviously I wasn't doing it then, but that's what I had heard. Um, but I would say in your top 50 cities in the United States by population, if you just went on Wikipedia, look at top 50, cut it off. I would say any property that's a hundred units or more, even 70 units or more has probably sold to a somewhat, if not sophisticated owner in the last 10 years. So now it's that owner has the broker relationships. It's going to be very tough to convince them to sell to you directly and not go through an intermediary. Um, now you can find deals that aren't necessarily quote unquote listed, um, but they're probably still going to go through a broker. So most of our deals for Toro um, do come through some sort of brokerage. Once in a while you get it from you know a lender or maybe your property manager has a client. Um, that has some opportunities available, but I would say 80%, at least right now, um, you know, is from some sort of commercial brokerage. Um, I do think there's still a tremendous amount of individual mom and pop unsophisticated owners in less populous cities and towns and also lower down the spectrum. So 10 units, 30 units, 50 units, you know, sub million dollars, sub $3 million. Um, I think you could still do a ton of direct mail, cold calling, you know, drive for dollars, knock on doors, all that stuff I think would be still be very effective. But every year there's that trickle down effect that you're going to see. So there's going to be less and less. So right now I do think there's still opportunity to go direct to owners, but you know, within the next few years, there's going to be less and less opportunity for that. Yeah. I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think more and more, more and more of the, the commercial brokers out there are going to start to take space in what many would consider the residential market, meaning apartment buildings and, and multifamily mm -hmm. houses, as yep. opposed to mixed use and strictly commercial. Um, mm -hmm. Give me a little insight. You know, you, you've got a couple of years under your belt. You've got a wealth of experience in that short amount of time that you've been doing this. If someone were to turn to you and say, hey, you're, you're, you're in the real estate investment space. Give me some guidance mm -hmm. where I should start, what I should do, and who is this, who is who is real estate investment for and not for, in your opinion? That's a good question. So 
if you're going to start, if you're starting from nothing, you have to get some sort of base level education. So you got to start with, you know, online sources like articles and bigger pockets, you know, different books, different podcasts, because if you don't have that base, it's going to be tough to go out and have conversations with people that have that base. They're going to quickly realize that you're not even there yet. And quite frankly, you're going to waste both your own time and their time. So it is a race somewhat to get up to, you know, a base level of aptitude to kind of start having those conversations with, you know, investors, with brokers, with owners, with insurance and, you know, things like that. You got to learn all the things that go into it because as an owner or as a, you know, syndicator, we're basically putting together a lot of different puzzle pieces to form, you know, the full picture, you know, and close on the property. There's, you know, your mortgage lender, there's your insurance, there's your investors, you know, there's your title company, there's the broker, there's the seller, um, you know, there's a multitude of other different things you have to put together um, to be able to actually close that property, make sure everybody's on the same page and is also ready to, you know, close at the same time. So that's primarily your job when you're doing that. So if you don't understand or have those relationships available and ready to deploy, it's going to be very tough to buy a property and not, you know, ruin some bridges as you're going through that. Um, So once you kind of get to that level, um, then I think it's really get, you know, getting experience with other people. I still think is the best way to do it. Um, I know, you know, education courses and training and coaching and all that stuff is great. I just know I've done both, you know, I haven't done both for multifamily, but I did it for the flipping and I did it for here. And I know getting that experience through, you know, passively investing, joint venturing, and then, you know, working under two people and with other people for longer periods of time, I wouldn't be where I am today if I bought a course and just tried to do it myself. And look, that could just be me too. I, I get that. Some people learn in different ways, but I do think leveraging other people's experience will get you where you want to go quicker. You're probably just going to give up some stuff up front. I think you're just going to be in a better position further forward. Yeah, um, and there's plenty of ways to do that. Yeah. I think, you know, listen, I think with anything, the more work you put into it, the more intelligent work you put into it, the more you learn to be athletic and adjust on the fly, uh, the, the more you'll be able to seize those opportunities and kind of pivot quickly when you see that, uh, you know, when you see that, that problem showing mm-hmm. up understanding and being aware of the fact that it is a problem, embracing that understanding of it and then figuring out how to move around it or completely avoid it whenever possible. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, yeah. I did want to address though, cause please. you did ask like, who is it for and who's it not for? Yep. And I think a lot of people aren't going to be happy with this answer. Um, I don't think put this, I don't think buy and hold multifamily is going to be for the person who doesn't have, you know, five figures or even six figures saved up to deploy. I'm not a huge proponent of, you know, crazy creative financing to buy properties where you have no money laid out. I'm all for the person that buys the deal, renovates it and pulls out all their equity in six, 12, 18, 24 months. I think that's great, but you got to have the money up front. I think it's very risky that from day one, you have no skin in the game and you're very highly levered because like has just happened, you know, God forbid something happens to that property. Now you've put in all this time, energy and effort for nothing. Cause you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not buying the property for nothing. You're just buying it for sweat equity. You're not just going to buy it, sit back. You know, it's not like you're going to find the seller that's going to, you know, give you the deed and you make certain payments 
and you're just going to sit back, collect. And in 12 months, you can refinance them out. And now you own this property for nothing. That doesn't happen. And if you did, you just struck, you know, gold. It's very rare. So a lot of times people are leveraging, you know, high loans or they have bridge lenders or pref equity and things like that. And I think especially when you're early on, it's significantly more risky when you don't have the education. I'm more of the mind, hey, save up for two years and then deploy $50,000, $100,000, $200,000 because I think you're less likely to lose it. And the number one rule in real estate is capital preservation in my mind. So if you're going to skip over that to go to number two, which is you know, risk-adjusted returns, I don't think this is for you. You're, build, you're building a very weak foundation by doing it that way. Correct. I, I agree with you. And I, I love the fact that you are not afraid to say that it's going to take money to do this, but you've also got to be willing to put the sweat equity into it. And I think that's where, while I don't ever want to knock any of the people who create these courses or any of these people who are on TV who are doing this and making money or any of the people who are making millions that nobody knows about, um, it's always going to come down to, are you willing to put the work in for what return? And like you even said earlier, you know, having, having skin in the game, trading off money for, for sweat equity, you've got to put a value on your time and you've got to realize yeah. that for a long stretch of time, that value is going to be a lot lower, but the more yeah. you do it, the more you grind away at it, the more, the, the bigger the return has the potential to be later in the process. Yeah. There was a, there was a great example of that. We had a, a guy, Joe Colasuno on our podcast and he built himself up to 400 units in Allentown um, by himself. Great guy. Um, he's done a lot. And he said his worst deal he ever did he made $100,000 on, but he said that 100000 the amount of time and effort he had to put in to actually make that $100,000, his per hour return was so close to zero, he said it was almost worthless. Yeah. He said, if I had not done that deal, I could have done five other deals yep. that would have made me way more. So I agree with you 100%. You got to put value on your time. I, I, had a, I had an agent in my real estate office years ago who came to me and he was early in the process and he was working with a buyer client and they were going out and they looked at a couple dozen houses over the course of a month and a half. And I said to him, listen, the only way you're going to be successful is, at this is if you put a value on what you're worth per hour. And he, he didn't want to hear the lesson for what it was. And I'm not going to get into the whole story, but he ended up showing this one, this one family, almost a hundred houses over the course of about four or five months. Mm -hmm. I sat down with them and I said, give me a rough idea of what you think you spent with them and the amount of time that you spent with them. And then I cut the number in half and I did the math and I said, you do realize that you, and I, I don't say this to knock anybody who does it, but you would have made more money flipping burgers after taxes at any fast food joint than you did on this transaction. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden you had that epiphany and that wake up call that says, I've got to put, I've got to put a value on my time. And if I'm going to, if I'm going to behave like an expert, I've got to become an expert. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it changed his career for the better. That one little conversation, because he realized, Hey, what, what you have the ability to do is bring massive value to somebody. You've got to be willing to admit to yourself. That's what you're worth. And you've also got to be willing to fire a client from time to time, because mm -hmm. as I learned at, at, during, during my stint in the restaurant business, the customer is always right until they're not right. There comes a point where the customer really, they, they may think they're right and it may be right in their mind, but in the bigger picture, they're not. And we've got to learn yeah. to rip that bandaid off sometimes and say, you know what, I'm just going to cut bait and, and tie a new line and start all over again. Yeah. I think it's really important, you know, valuing your time. But I also know, you know, there's, there's negatives in both extremes as well, where, you know, you're, 
agent you were just referring to was so far extreme where he didn't value it. I think there's also a lot of people that oh, not overvalue, oh, I, but 100%. They, they, they not only overvalue, but they also take it to the extreme where every action they do has to have some value attached to it. I think there's plenty of times where you have to take a step back and say, hey, maybe there's nothing that comes from it, right? Like I'm not sitting here on this podcast because I know I'm going to make a hundred bucks for the hour we spend. That's, that would be ridiculous. I would have never been here. But I know that one, you know, there's a lot of things that I can do for other people. And I just know that there's things I'm going to do that have no direct ROI on. But I think if you do enough good things and goodwill, those things are going to come back to you in way more spades than you could have ever, quote unquote, calculated than, you know, as if you went to the other extreme of that spectrum. So I do think there's a, I do see a lot of people, whether it's, especially in the commission side of business, whether it's agents or insurance brokers or, you know, life insurance brokers, it's, you know, every minute, every hour counts. And, you know, I've got to spend so much time. And I think that extreme is also, yeah. you're leaving money on the table too. So I think you've got to find a really good middle ground. I think you've got to be more towards that side of valuing your time, but I think you've all, you can't be all the way at the edge. I agree with you. I think you got to live, you got to live to the North side of the, of the average or the, the, the median number, um, mm-hmm. and, and have enough humility to be able to go to that exact, exact opposite end at times. It's like I had a conversation this morning with one of my business coaches that I, that I do work with and, and he just kind of put it out there and, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Gary Vayner. I, I, I am a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk. I consumed an insane amount of his content for years. And I've just kind of put that on the back burner over the last year and a half because I've spent more time focusing on implementing it as opposed to, to studying him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about it. And he says, you put an awful lot of time and effort into your social media. And, and he was playing devil's advocate. So I give him credit for that. He says, mm-hmm. what's the return on that? Have you been able to monetize? And I, the, the first thing I did was threw it right back at him and said, yes, we, we did all, about a dozen referrals in, in 2019 that we were able to monetize heavily as a result of our social media, which led to some of our paid advertising and retargeting stuff. He says, but what's, what's the goal? And I said, you, I'll never be able to monetize social media in the sense that I run it, I run I put a post up and I'm going to make X amount of dollars. I'm not that, that old school foodie influencer who said, I'll take a picture, give me 500 bucks and a free meal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's that goodwill that you mentioned, um, of doing the right thing for people and, and to steal a line from one that, that Gary uses all too often, doing the right thing is always the right thing. And I believe mm-hmm. bringing value to people who you may or may not know just by, by being authentically yourself and throwing it out there for people, uh, does a world of good for not only your, your pocketbook in the long run, but I think for your brand equity and your, and your, your personal fulfillment. Yeah. I mean, I think too, even just beyond that, like just the, the fulfillment you get too from helping other people is hugely beneficial. I mean, we had, we had a, you know, now a good friend of ours, an investor and, you know, someone we met through the meetup we were doing, his name's Lance. He came on our podcast and we were just talking. And at the time during the podcast. I didn't really catch it, but he said something like, we asked him like, Hey, you know, do you think you would have done real estate if we didn't have the meetup and you didn't know Anthony, who was my cousin who I did the flipping with and he introduced us. Do you think you would have gotten involved in all this stuff? And they've, he's, you know, invested some decent dollars with us. And he also 50% owns 19 units in Pennsylvania with a partner who we met at the meetup. So he, he answered it during the podcast and I didn't catch until I went back and rewatched it. He's like, yeah, you know what? I'm not really sure if I would have, you know, even, even if I did, I think it would have taken me way longer than if I had met you guys invested, 
you know, gone to the meetup and like you guys had helped me out. He's like, I don't think I, you know, I would have been where I am today, you know, today without the help that we got. Maybe I would have gotten there in the future, but it was a huge push. And it was like, just hearing that we had kind of fallen off doing some of the meetups. Cause it was like, you know, I don't want to say it was a drain, but it's, you know, extra work. It's yeah. late at night. You got to go out once a month, prepare and do things and get people going. And you do a lot of stuff, money directly out of our pocket. We do it fully for free at a hotel. And it was just got to the point where we're like, all right, we need to, we just decided, Hey, we need to take a break because it's too much on us or whatever. And we were, we had talked about starting it back up and doing it again. And then after I heard that, I was like, we got to do this. So I was like, Lance is an incredible person, you know, really enjoy knowing him and getting to know him over these years. I was like, if, if I can over the next two years meet, you know, you know, two more Lances or a dozen more Lances, yeah. I was like that, that pays for itself. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you a hundred percent. The impact you'd have on him and then the opportunity it creates for you. It's like, I, 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 I love to tell people all the time that whenever I'm asked to teach something, I I'm blessed because whether there's one person in the room or a hundred people in the room, I guarantee you 100%. If I'm put up on that stage for an hour to teach, I'm going to learn 10 times more than everyone else in that room combined. Yeah, for sure. And I, and uh, it's funny too, when I first started doing some of the social media stuff and the meetups and stuff, I would go to say things or I would go to comment on things and I would like double check myself. Cause I was like, okay, I'm like 80% sure I know what I'm talking about or like 85% sure. But I was like, let me be a hundred percent sure before I go and tell this to somebody else, because God forbid I'm wrong. Yep. They're either going to come back to me or I'm just going to feel terrible. Yeah. So it makes you like shore up a lot of things and continue to learn a lot of things that you kind of take for granted, or you don't think you know as well as you actually do yeah. and kind of shore up, you know, some, some cracks in your foundation. Yeah. Living life on, uh, on the, on the front side of the lens creates an incredible amount of personal accountability because you don't want to be wrong and you don't want to give bad advice. Even if it is your own opinion, mm-hmm. you don't want to steer someone down the wrong, the wrong path, because if you're a good person at the, you know, at, at the heart of things, if you're a good person, the last thing you want to do is see someone else screw up as a result of something you told them to do and weren't a hundred percent sure of. For sure. That's why I'm, that's, I'm shocked at the amount of people going back to the over leveraging creative financing that will sell courses on that stuff. Because I personally would be so nervous that someone's going to take that and then go get recourse debt and then end up owing more money than they had to begin with right. because I taught it poorly or I was putting people in a high risk scenario. Like yep. that's not something I would ever personally want to advocate because yep. that's just against who I am, but you know, everybody's different. So. Yep. I agree. And it's, it's not like it's the kind of thing where you can teach it here because, because it is such a creative industry when it comes to financing and, and, mm-hmm. and moving money around, which is what it's ultimately all about money and responsibility. It's not the kind of thing that it's one size fits all. It seems like I don't do a lot of commercial investments. I I never have. I've been on the residential side. I bought one commercial building, which I'm in the process of selling now, uh, which I was, I bought for my own personal use and ended up changing, changing the, the, the the roadmap for us. Um, what, what type? Uh, it, it was a retail space in locally here in, in Mineola. I was in the, re- like I mentioned earlier, I was in the restaurant business for a couple of years. I was going gotcha. to open a second spot. Uh, mm-hmm. We started doing some renovations and worked on some zoning changes for it. And fortunately for me, the zoning is where actually we're going to make the profit on the building itself and, and getting the rezoning done. It just, we just got lucky uh, yep. to be honest with you. And 
luck should not be the one thing you lean on when you when you when you're dealing with commercial investments because the dollar amounts are high and it's it's not the kind of thing if i want to gamble i'd rather go to vegas and sit down at a poker <laughs> table or, or put the money on a roulette wheel uh, yeah. as opposed to this um you touched on a couple things let's talk a little bit about about what you do you mentioned your social media and your podcast uh, what's what's the name of your podcast so it's called the real estate investing experience okay and we called it that because we want to continue to kind of expand it and encompass more than the podcast. So, you know, one of the things we wanted to, you know, we ha- we're already doing the meetup. So we wanted it, you know, that to be part of it. And we want to start like a Facebook group. Um, you know, we've talked about doing some other things. So we really wanted it to be more than just the podcast and have things play off each other um, and kind of build it up. But yeah, it's, you know, very similar to how we're doing now, you know, 40, 60 minutes, sit down with, one or two people and just kind of have a chat, you know, no BSing about it. Um, just kind of learn a lot of different niches and industries and different ways to do real estate. Cause I think one of the things I see a lot, especially with newer people getting into it is everybody hears about one way to do it, right? right? You hear about the Burr strategy, you know, you hear about house hacking, you hear about multifamily syndications. Um, and there's a million, million different ways to structure all different types of assets. And I think too many people get caught up in one way. Um, A lot of times I'll get the question of, Hey, how do I get started in real estate? And my advice is go research five different assets and five different ways to invest in that asset because there's so many different ways to do it. And people don't realize how many different ways to do it. And not one is better than the other. It all comes back to, Hey, what are your goals and what do you want to accomplish? And then figure out which one you think fits best try it and see if you like it. If you don't move on to the next. And I think too many people get caught up in not realizing how many avenues there are and then caught up on trying to find the perfect fit out of the box because they don't want to waste time. And you're wasting time by trying not to waste time. You end up digging yourself a hole that's so deep you can't get out of it. And then you're scrambling to try to figure it out, which gets you even deeper and deeper in that hole. Yeah. And I mean, even me personally, I went through, you know, four different styles of assets before I landed in, you know, larger multifamily. I went from house flipping to tried to buy tax deeds at one point because that was what John had done previously. And he was, I skipped over this part, but he was going to teach us how to do it. We drove down one weekend to go try it. And me and my cousin, Anthony just hated it instantly. So we spent a week on that and realized very, very quickly it wasn't for us, but we spent eight months on flipping, learning it wasn't for us. Um, We did smaller multifamily with John, both passively and as a joint venture and liked it, but felt it was harder to scale and harder to manage from out of state. And then got introduced to the larger multifamily, which is, you know, what I really like as an asset class. And I think we'll probably always be at least for the foreseeable future, the next several years, kind of the, you know, the anchor of our holdings. You know, like I said, we're starting to get into some mobile home stuff, We've dabbled in some land stuff. I could see us potentially getting into, you know, maybe office because Don was in office leasing for 30 years with Cushman and Wakefield. So he has a basis in that. But, you know, now that got there and learned it and really know it to a certain degree, I think that'll probably be, you know, the anchor. But it took, you know, the fourth asset and style, you know, over 12 to 18 months before I figured that out. And I think nobody wants to spend that time and energy, you know, sustained to kind of figure that out. They want to know day one, what they should be doing. Let's dive into that a little bit more. Do you ever feel like you wasted your time on any of it? No, I don't. I think it provided 
we, I actually had this debate with John once he said, I wish he the first deal he ever bought was a 48 unit in Columbus, Ohio back in 2014. He said, I wish I would have just focused on Columbus and continued to buy there because that market did phenomenal. We actually just bought our, excluding that one, we bought, we just bought our third asset in Columbus, Ohio in the last 12 or 16 months, whatever it is, we're up to like 800 units. Now that 48 unit he already sold. So we only own the three. And he's like, he's like, if I had just focused there, we would have, you know, we would have dominated that market. And I was like, maybe, but I said, but you also did a ground up deal in Clarksville, Tennessee. I said, you did a totally vacant unit in Mobile, Alabama. You did a 50% occupied deal in Jackson, Mississippi. We bought a thousand units in Jacksonville, Florida, bought 600 units in the Carolinas, 800 units in the Carolinas. I said, you would have never gotten all that experience and knowledge by working with five other management companies. You would have never learned all the different market fundamentals. You would have never gotten the experience of what those smaller markets are like. So I said, could you have done better by going to Columbus? For sure. But I think your base foundation would have been severely narrower. And I think that would have hurt you. I think you're better set up this way for the next 30 years than you would have been. I, I love I love the I love the answer and I love the diversity that comes with it. It leads me to my next question. What and again, this is going to be this is based on you. What makes a market a good or a bad market in your opinion? Um, I think again, it just comes back to what you're looking for. So because we're looking for areas that we can add value to, you know, we're looking for areas that also are growing and people are moving to. Um, we also want deals that both have cash flow and appreciation, whether it's forced or organic, right? Commercial, you can force appreciation by increasing rents and net operating income, but you can also get organic appreciation by cap rate compression or just market rent growth, et cetera. Um, so we wanted areas that would provide both good cash flow and good upside. Um, and those are areas where they're not the most in-demand markets, but they're also not less populated. So we started targeting markets that had um, a million people plus in the MSA, which is called the Metropolitan Statistical Area. So for example, New York City, the MSA is all five boroughs, I think Long Island, and it might even be Westchester County. I don't really know. It's at least lower Westchester, if not all of Westchester County. Yeah. So when you look at the MSAs, a lot of times, broad strokes, it's you know the city and the suburbs around it. Um, so we wanted areas that had a million people or more because we felt that has really good demand, really good economics, really good amount of resources there where you know if we had a contractor we didn't like, good chance we have several more options. If there's a landscaping company we didn't like, several more options. If there's a manager, several more like a lot of things to go to. Also makes travel easier to get to, probably you know greater airports, hubs, et cetera. Um, and then beyond that, we looked for areas with growing population, um, pro-business, um, low unemployment or trending downwards unemployment. Um, we looked for really good uh, supply and demand metrics on population growth versus the number of new housing units coming online. Um, we looked for, what else do we look for? Um, job growth. Um, there's a few others I'm forgetting, but yeah. you know, things that just show that, you know, the area is growing, people want to be there. Um, things like that. Um, a lot of those places over the last eight years have been, um, states with no income tax. So 
Tennessee, Florida, Texas. Texas. I'm sure there's a few others, but those yeah. are the big ones. Um, but then also, you know, just lower cost of living areas. So, you know, you know, several of your Midwest markets, um, the Carolinas, um, Georgia, um, Arizona, um, Nevada, I think, or I don't know the West coast too well, cause we don't really focus over there. Um, but Texas, um, so areas like that. Tremendous opportunities and places, unlike my home County and Nassau County that are not amongst mm-hmm. the most expensive places to live in the country. <laughs> yeah. Cost and of that's, living here. You know, and that's one of the things, you know, we looked at, you know, obviously you look in your backyard and, you know, we looked at, obviously John came from, uh, investment sales for, you know, Brooklyn properties, Queens properties, you know, three units, six units, 10 units, et cetera, uh, marks a mill chap. And we didn't want to buy there because a lot of the investors and a lot of the deals we were looking for, the cap rates were so low. Your cash flow was so light, if almost non-existent. And we were looking for that blend of cash flow and appreciation. Right. New York has the great ability to pop. It also has the great ability to preserve capital from a value standpoint. Um, on the commercial side, I don't know too much about the residential side, how it's stacked up to the rest of the country. Um, but when you looked at values per apartment or value per unit, um, through the downturn in 2008, the top five metros held their value significantly better than your, they call them secondary and tertiary markets. So your secondary markets are, you know, Atlanta, Charlotte, um, what else? Uh, Orlando's Houston, Houston's. Dallas. Yep. Your tertiaries are like your your Orlando's, your Jacksonville, Florida's. Um, what else? Probably St. Louis, um, Louisville. Those are kind of more tertiary markets. Right. So those took a harder dip in the downturn, but that's the risk and reward you look at versus cap rates. So if I had $50 million in the bank, you know, a 4% return or a 3% return, that's still a tremendous amount of money. I may be more worried about losing that than necessarily maximizing the return. So I'm going to invest in places like New York, like Boston, LA, Miami, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, what we were looking for was a good blend of the two of, hey, we don't want to be in, you know, a small town in Kentucky we want to be in a more populous area where they'll still hold some value, but it'll also provide a little bit better cash flow. Gotcha. We, we touched on a bunch of stuff. I'm going to lead down one more path and then I'm going to sure. let you go. What are the most important relationships a guy like you can create with who and where are they? You know, someone who, someone who aspires to be in the real estate investment game, who do you think the people are best suited for people to go out of their way to try to create those relationships? In what, in what context? I'm not sure I follow. Someone, someone wants to get into the investment business. Mm-hmm. Who is it that they should be spending their time with? You know, we, like we said earlier, you become the average of the people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. If someone wants to get into this business and they're in their mid to late twenties, early thirties, who should they be hanging around? Who should they be asking questions of and paying attention to, to get to that point where they have, a little gotcha. bit of that clarity that you appear to be embracing so much. So the first thing they should do is hit up every person in their phone and find out if they do real estate investing, because a lot of real estate investors or landlords are actually very private about the fact that they own real estate. 
And if you already have that prior relationship with, they're going to be significantly more likely to give you their time and their experience if they find out you're interested in learning more, right? If you call your uncle Jim and you find out he owns retail spaces in Hempstead, good chance he's probably going to spend some time and show you the ropes and give you some information and maybe take you to the properties and show you things and how he got started and all that stuff. If you don't have that, because there's a lot of people who won't, and maybe they don't want to share it, you know, you got to start looking for, you know, different events and networking things and conferences where you can go to and just get in the mix with other people that are actually doing it or other people that also want to learn how to do it because you're just going to continue to drag each other up. So I would go to, you know, go to meetup.com and look for different events. I would look on bigger pockets and look for events. Um, I would try to, you know, a lot of podcasts, they have conferences that they're going to host and you can go to those and you can just start making different connections like that. Um, and just start meeting people on, you know, on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and now TikTok even. Um, and you just start making those connections and, you know, you create, you know, groups and masterminds and you just slowly meet different people that are in it or want to be in it. And, you know, you just try to find the people that you jive with really well and are looking to do the same or similar things um, and just try to, you know, prop each other up or, you know, drift off people's, you know, wakes in, you know, they've already gotten to, you know, step three, can you get behind their wake and, you know, kind of you know, go be, you know, behind the drift they've already created and right. kind of speed up your process. Drift so from step one, um, to step two kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think too many people are afraid to reach out to their immediate network and ask if they're involved or they know somebody involved. I would almost bet 80%, if not closer to a hundred, have somebody in their phone that is in real estate investing or know somebody in real estate investing. And that warm connection is going to be way better than, you know, somebody you meet at a meetup event who, you know, you've got to figure out who they are first and then figure out if you want to create that relationship with them. Yeah. In this social media, internet driven, massive amounts of media and content creation world we live in, the days of six degrees of separation are long gone. It's reality. There's probably two, three at the most between you and getting to somebody that you need to get to who could be a benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like you just can't be afraid to ask, um, you know, people tell you no, people tell you yes, but I bet you way more people than you think will say yes. I think one of the really good things, especially a lot of people that I know in the real estate community um, are very free with their time yeah. and are very happy to give back um, because this is a, you know, this is a path to financial freedom. And yeah. once you achieve financial freedom or you get closer, you know, you're pretty certain you're going to get there, you're going to be way more free to give back. Um, it was interesting. We had a conversation with, um, a guy named Omar Khan, who's another, uh, syndicator. And we were talking about being younger, you know, raising money from people who are older or who have money. And there's a really great trend in this country from entrepreneurs and businessmen and investors and businesswomen as well, um, to, you know, give your money and time to other go-getters or people like yourself because you want to see them succeed and you see yourself in that person. So that's where we have guys who are, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old who invest with, you know, I'm 28 and John's 33. And I think Omar's like 34, you know, that's a big difference, you know, but they're willing to, 
you know, put money behind us and stuff because they like who we are and what we stand for and what we're doing and the drive and stuff like that. So um, definitely don't be afraid to ask, especially the, you know, the much bigger quote unquote, or, you know, the much more successful or the much more wealthier. You know, when you have that freedom, you know, if they're that type of person, you know, it just allows them to kind of, you know, give back and help people that they like and they want to give back to. Yep. A wise investor will always bet on the jockey, not on the horse. And if they see yep. something in you, and, and I, I've witnessed that personally, and you know, I'm, I've got I've got a couple of years on you. I'm 50, but I still to this day <laughs> see it in conversations that I have with people where when I get the chance to meet with somebody who's post retirement age, uh, and, and but they're still active in a lot of different things, um, mm-hmm. they're, they're always willing to give the, their time because they want to they it becomes part of their legacy as well, whether it's their time and their money or just their time and their or, and influence. I, I think it's a great way to look at it. And I, it's why I said, I always love to get the opportunity to teach, whether it's a room full of people, half my age or twice my age doesn't matter to me. I, mm-hmm. I just love being around wisdom. And I think when I'm, when we get the chance to share our, our own experiences and whatever wisdom we may have, you get that collaborative effort of everybody else in the room. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, Chris, I think on that note, we, we ended on a hard note there and we're in agreement on something. So I think we're going to wrap it there. Uh, Chris, again, you're, you're the host of the real estate investing experience podcast, which I'm assuming people can find on iTunes and Spotify and all of the good places where podcasts can be found from Toro real estate partners. And I'll touch on it real quick. You're also going to be one of the featured presenters at the upcoming event that we're working with to produce for the leukemia lymphoma society uh, this year where we've moved it from an on-site event in place at the Tillis Center. We have now taken the wonderful world of quarantine and come up with a brilliant new idea for free. You're going to be part of this telethon that we're putting on. And you'll yes. be speaking with you, one of your partners as well, correct? Yes. John and I are going to be speaking. Um, we're going to be the, you know, the guys talking about, you know, multifamily investing, um, out-of-state investing, um, you know, spend 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes, whatever they give us. I'm just kind of, you know, telling them how we do it, um, how to get started, what to look for, and just try to give a little bit of knowledge to anybody that's looking to do it as well. And that's it. And you guys will be one of at least eight guaranteed sessions during that event, which you can find out more information on uh, lirealestaterevolution.com. It's a one-day free uh, webinar event, telethon type thing. I actually got Charles to refer to Jerry Lewis in one of his promotions after he <laughs> admitted to me, he didn't know who Jerry Lewis was, which made me feel really old. Uh, <laughs> but we're, we're looking to bring huge value around so many different areas in the real estate investing world. And this is going to be an opportunity for people to watch and listen and maybe even ask some questions of some of, some of the most successful and brilliant people in the business today here on and around Long Island. And all we ask is that if you do see value in it, feel kind enough to reach into your pocket, make a donation to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of America, our Long Island chapter here, uh, and make a difference to help, help put a cure to blood cancers and childhood cancers of all different types. Chris, again, I thank you so much for your time. We're coming in just under an hour, which means we did our job right, and we hope that we, we brought some great value to the audience. I want to thank you for your time. Uh, we're going to link you up and all your all your social connections to our podcast and our, our Instagram and Facebook and all the other wonderful places. So if anybody's got any questions, please feel free to reach out to Chris and connect with him. He's a brilliant mind, and we can't thank you enough for your time. We wish you the best of luck and success in the future. You too, Con. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. Have a great day. Everybody have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks for tuning in.